Okay. Welcome to the fifth, no, the sixth <laughs> session of uh, Bird's Eye View of the Bible. Uh, for prayer this morning, we have a prayer from the uh, Galician Sacrament, uh, Sacramentary, which is the oldest prayer book that we have from about the year 500. And is it Celtic? It, it, it's it's partly uh, from the Gauls, uh, from the Brits. I'm not sure how how widespread it is, but uh, yeah. So let's pray. Oh God, we pray that the burden of sin which we carry on our souls may be dissolved forever in the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, and free from his deadly, from this deadly weight. May our souls raise with him to eternal life. Amen. Amen. That was going to be appropriate since we're going to talk a fair bit today about the death of Jesus. So we talked last time, when we finished the life of Jesus, we talked a fair bit about the resurrection. And I went on a great pains to make the point that Without the resurrection, we really don't have the Jesus movement. We don't have the New Testament. It, I think it just stops. So that, that, that's going to be profoundly important in shaping the Jesus movement as it goes forward. Profoundly important. What's interesting, and we'll see in just a few minutes, what's interesting is that how important the resurrection is, it doesn't so overshadow Jesus' death so that focus on Jesus' death is no longer part of um, Christian thinking. If you just think about that for a minute, say, oh, that's not obvious, actually. I mean, if you were there and you experience Jesus' death, and then, oh, wow, he's risen from the dead, what would you be excited about? What would you talk about? Yeah. Well, you'd talk about the resurrection. Is that all that you would talk about? What is the image that we have at the front of our churches? A cross. A cross. Interesting. Yeah. So th that's going to be an interesting thing, that, that the, uh, the reality of Jesus having died is still a central focus in the Jesus movement. It doesn't, it doesn't get lost in the resurrection, as important as the resurrection is. No. So, uh, we got to hear what some fundamental questions um, were. Uh, this is now after Jesus has risen from the dead, after he is uh, no longer with his people, will the movement continue? Yes, it does. How does the Jesus movement relate to Judaism? That's going to be an important question. How is it that the death of Jesus did not spill the end of the Jesus movement? We're going to have to think about that. How do non-Jews join the, the Jesus movement? Enter the Apostle Paul. We'll talk about that. And how does the Jesus movement relate to the Greco-Roman culture and the Roman Empire? And that's going to be an issue throughout. Okay. So... Uh, I, I, I'm going to uh, skim over some things fairly briefly to get on to some things later on. 
but one of the first things that people in the Jesus movement do is they tell the story of Jesus. And uh, we have four such uh, accounts in the New Testament. And um, I don't know, I, I, I think if we've been brought up in the church, we just take it for granted that, oh yes, there's four Gospels. But just stop and think about it for a minute. Why wasn't there just one? Why wasn't there one authorized uh, biography of Jesus? And indeed, such an attempt was made in the second century. Uh, a number of attempts were made. The most uh, well-known one is called the Dia Tesseron. Dia Tesseron, one through four. So it was taking the four Gospels and trying to make one out of it. And it had some... Uh, popularity for some time, particularly in the Syrian church. Um, but in the end, the, uh, the, the churches throughout the Mediterranean world preferred four Gospels to one Gospel. Interesting. They so the, some perspective. There, there are different perspectives in, in, in the different Gospels. Uh, and we could take several hours to talk about the different perspectives. I've just given you a very brief summary statement for each of the Gospels um, that could lead us into uh, more thought. Uh, the Gospel of Mark, we, we think, uh, yeah, I think still most scholars think that Mark was written first, um, either just before or just after the fall of Jerusalem in the year 70. Uh, Jesus and his message about the kingdom of God are a mystery that calls for investigation. Hence the use of, a, of metaphor and parable. Jesus' death on the cross may be the key to understanding, but it too is a mystery needing to be probed. Uh, what, one of the incidents of, or, or the um, um, ways in which Mark brings out uh, the mystery aspect is the way he ends the gospel. Um, Jesus dies. There's an empty tomb. The women flee. And that's it. That's the end of the story. And for many years, uh, Christians have thought that to be an inappropriate ending to the story, and therefore you have added bits onto the end in your gospel. But they'll be separated off. These aren't in the earliest manuscript sort of thing, but it seems like an odd ending. But it is the, the um, kind of mystery. Um, disciples in Mark's Gospel don't really get it. Uh, they hear the parables, but they're not quite getting it. And they don't get it until the cross. So the cross becomes a, um, a lens through which you have to look in order to understand what's, what, what's going on. In contrast, Matthew's Gospel, Matthew is clear that Jesus is calling his followers into a community with high ethical standards. You get much more teaching of Jesus in, Ma in Matthew's Gospel, like the Sermon on the Mount. That's, that's not in Mark. A radical interpretation of Torah and a transformation of the heart, and with a mission to recruit others to the movement. And the last, uh, um, I send you out into all the world 
to preach the gospel, to make disciples of all nations. Yeah. Parables are given to help explain why it is that although Jesus is the Messiah, the kingdom of God does not appear to be advancing very quickly, but the disciples truly are learning the way of the kingdom. So one of the interesting things that, that distinguishes Matthew and Mark is in Matthew, the disciples really are getting it. And when they get the, when Jesus teaches the parables, they understand. It's a difference. It'd be interesting to have Matthew and Mark in the same room <laughs> and, and uh, talk about the life of Jesus. Uh, Luke, in telling the story of Jesus, Luke makes numerous implicit allusions to the story of Israel, which has the effect of encouraging deeper reading and which invites readers into a world shaped by these stories. Important in these stories are the faithfulness of God, suffering as part of the experience of the people of God, concern for the marginalized, and the call to countercultural living. And I'd need to go to some extent to show you all of those. But... Then finally, John. Uh, John draws on Israel's scripture as a source of symbols that prefigure Jesus. So important in John's gospel is the temple. The, the place where God dwells, and that becomes a symbol of Jesus himself. Right. Jesus is the source of living water and the light of the world, both elements symbolized in the Jewish Feast of Dedication. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, symbolized in the Passover celebration. Uh, Jesus is the manna from heaven, recalling the Israelite experience following the exodus from Egypt. Jesus is the true vine, taking on the identity of Israel. And Jesus is the Logos, the divine wisdom that is reflected throughout creation. So you can see there's a number of uh, things that are important in the Old Testament that become symbols to understand Jesus. And that's what John, um, John uh, draws on. John's Gospel is the one that's most different from the other three. Uh, the first three we call synoptic Gospels. That is, you could put them side by side, and there's a lot of material that's shared between the, the, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, and John is um, almost totally different traditions uh, from the life of Jesus. I think the only one, apart from his death, of course, I think the only one that's the same is the feeding of the 5,000. It's the only incident that's in all four Gospels. And uh, Jesus' baptism is alluded to in John's Gospel, isn't it? Come on in. Come on in. Do you want me to let them in? No. Carol will get it. Carol will get it. Okay. Oh, that's all right. So that's all I'm going to say about the Gospels. So the, I mean, we've talked a lot about the life of Jesus. Uh, now I'm, these are just some stories. Okay, now what to say about the account of the life of Jesus? The counts of. Okay. Um, the next book in the New Testament is the book of Acts. The uh, book of Acts shows various accounts of where Christians confront religious practices 
but also where they are not guilty of trying to overthrow the powers that be. They are subversive but not seditious. I think that's the key to the book of Acts. I mean, Acts is telling the story of the spread of the church um, from Jerusalem uh, as far as Rome and many incidents that go along the way. And I think one of the key questions is, is, is Christianity in relation to the empire, in relation to society, is it supportive of society or not? Is it trying to overthrow? I mean, it's kind of a silly question. It's just a small movement. How could it? But um, through various in, in interactions with um, people in power, uh, Luke is making the point that while Christians may be subversive, they're trying to overthrow the status quo in some ways, they're not being seditious and they're not promoting a, a riot. All right. That's Acts. And then apostolic letters. Uh, so all kinds of letters from Paul and others. And they address various concerns in Christian communities. Significance of Jesus. Death and resurrection we'll look at in a minute. Uh, explaining how the Jesus movement is consistent with the scriptures. That's going to be important. Uh, if, if, you're, if you're Jewish and you haven't given up your faith, then it's going to be really important how you tell the story of the Jesus movement in relation to what you know, in relation to the Old Testament. Well, at this point, it's called the scriptures. Uh, giving people a vision of what being followers of Jesus looks like, sure. Instruction in Christian values and sorting out ethical issues. Solving disputes, encouraging unity, encouragements to remain faithful, etc. Uh, so these are what uh, apostolic letters are about. And then at the end you have the apocalypse, which is great fun. Um, like what the book of Daniel did for Jews living during the oppression of the Assyrian occupation, the book of Revelation gave hope to Christians who were undergoing persecution in one form or another, depicting the opposition with Roman authority as a cosmic battle. Yeah, so that's so appreciating the genre of what the book of Revelation is with all these uh, monsters and uh, visions of heaven and so forth is really important um, because at the end of the day it's trying to give encouragement to Christians who are undergoing some form of oppression from um, the powers that be from their neighbors um, in trying to live as a Christian, they're being opposed in various ways. So, for example, they, there are certain uh, ceremonies, certain sacrifices they cannot participate in. You can't offer sacrifice to the emperor, for example. Um, and that becomes an issue. So, it's drawing a big... It, it, it's trying to show you behind the curtain what's going on. Um...
the apocalypse. We got a whole course on the on the apocalypse. Just summed up in three minutes. Yeah. There you are. Ooh. Easy. Why do people so do Okay, um, a little bit on Paul. I'm not going to say too much here about his upbringing. He had a Hellenistic background and a Jewish background. Uh, he didn't grow up in Palestine. He grew up in modern-day Turkey. Um, one of the things, uh, we talk about Paul's conversion, but I suppose one of the most famous accounts in the New Testament is told three times, uh, is Paul is on his way to Damascus, to arrest some Christians, and he has a vision uh, of uh, Jesus. He falls off his horse, and you know how it goes. Um, and we speak of this as Paul's conversion experience. And we need to be careful when we talk uh, about what we mean by conversion. It's not like he was a Jew and then he became a Christian. He did not change his God. He did not change his scriptures. In some ways, it's more like um, uh, his experience on the Damascus Road is more like a calling. Mm -hmm. um, Stopped persecuting. Yeah, I mean, there's a 180 degree turn, uh, but he, he, he has a commission uh, uh, from, from, from that day. But in, and it's a re-understanding of the framework of the Judaism that he grew up in, but it's still within that framework. So I wanted, uh, I just want to be cautious about thinking. Oh, and now Paul became a Christian. Okay, but that doesn't mean he's not a Jew, right? So he was a Jew and. That moment, he accepted the prophet Jesus as the savior, yeah, as as Messiah. Messiah. Yeah. So he yes, he became a follower of Jesus, but becoming a follower—it's like changing from one sect of Judaism to another sect of Judaism. That's what Christianity is at this point. It's a sect within Judaism. Yeah. Um, I thought this might be helpful. Uh, just to give um, an overview of Paul's theology. Paul talks a lot of, about a lot of different things. And it's difficult to get, okay, what's, what's Paul about? What is it that he's, uh, his, his main thing? Because he talks about a lot of different things. And they're scattered among several letters. So can we try to bring together what is it that is at the core of Paul that's distinctive of Paul? So I've broken it down into, I don't know, uh, five, six, seven points here. Um, how to understand Paul. The, the God of Israel is revealed in the scriptures, is fulfilling his promise to Abraham through Jesus the Messiah, especially through his death and resurrection. Right, now we're getting bird's eye view. Right? Because we're starting with Abraham, and that the promises given to Abraham are now... Uh, being realized, and now it's because of Jesus. Uh, the fulfillment of this uh, has in view, quote, salvation for both Jews and Gentiles, the two being made into one new community. And I would say if there's one thing that distinguishes Paul uh, it, within the Jesus movement, it's, it, it, it's working this out. 
working out how it is that non-Jews can join the movement. And, and, and he's, he's the theologian. And it's, it's not that he's the only one doing that. In fact, when he goes to Antioch at, at one point, he joins a mission that is to non-Jews. But Paul is the one who figures out how this works theologically. Uh, the way to appropriate this salvation was by faith. As a consequence, Gentiles, in particular, did not have to follow Jewish ethnic practices of Torah observance, especially circumcision, food laws, Sabbath keeping. So that was going to be one of the big questions. Yes, non-Jews can join us, but they join us and they take on Torah, as we have all our lives. Uh, according to Scripture... All the males supposed to be circumcised. You know, it, it, it was. It, it, this was not a simple um, conclusion to come to. Uh, we think of it perhaps as fairly obvious, but it was not simple. Uh, there were many within the Jesus movement who argued that no non non Jews need to uh, become Jews essentially in order to uh, join the Jesus movement. So Paul's argument. Is that no, that's not the case. Uh, followers of Jesus live in an in-between time between the resurrection of Jesus and the general resurrection at the end of the age. So Jews all expected, um, I have a slide later on, uh, we live in this current age and we hope for the age to come before the, uh, the uh, transition between this age and the age to come is going to be a general resurrection. Uh, that's Jewish hope uh, for the future. God is going to set all things right. There's going to be a general resurrection. So how Christianity mod modified that is there's a resurrection in the middle of this age of Messiah. So we still look forward to the general resurrection, but it's, it's like we live in an in-between time between the resurrection of Jesus and uh, the general resurrection. Okay. Within this in-between time, followers of Jesus are empowered by God's Spirit to live faithfully so as not to compromise with regard to the ungodly practices and values of the present world. Right? And we'll get, get into Romans chapter 8, for example, he talks about believers uh, being empowered by the Spirit, walking according to the Spirit, and I think this is finally followers of Jesus hope for Jesus' return, the restoration of creation, and the reunion of God living with his people. Right. Okay, I think that's an overview of what Paul's about. So when you're thinking, when you're reading, um, this, this could give you a framework for understanding. Any questions on that? I was just wondering, number six, uh, it's not changed much. The ungodly practices and the values of the present world have struggled with it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and, and I think. Paul would understand that there's a struggle. Yeah. Uh, but
but he'd also say there's a real possibility of renewed life within this time. Okay? So that's Paul. Now, one of the things that, um, that the Jesus movement did was reread the scriptures. Um, and I think they got this from Jesus himself. So Jesus reads the Old Testament to highlight the significance of events in his own life. And I can give you lots of examples of this. But uh, notice Luke, from Luke 24, uh, this is after his resurrection. Uh, then Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. <clears throat> then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Which scriptures are those again? <laughs> Psalms, Moses, prophets. Many, many commentators would like to have known uh, the footnotes. Uh, <laughs> if only Jesus would have provided the foot, the footnotes, which, which scriptures was he referring to? But he is saying that the scriptures refer to him. So, so there's a rereading of the, of the scriptures to see how they, uh, they refer to him. And we're going to need to be careful about this. Um, Here's, a, here's another example uh, how Jesus uses the scriptures. He sat at table in the house and he's got tax collectors and sinners mm -hmm. come with Jesus and his, and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw it, they said, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick do. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So he's citing from Hosea chapter 6. And using that to refer to something in his own ministry. Now if you go back to Hosea chapter 6, you will find it has nothing to do with Messiah. It has nothing to do with prediction of something in the future. But what is Jesus doing? He's, you, he, he's finding a correspondence between something in his uh, ministry and the scriptures. Um, so it's, it, it's not that Hosea thought one day Messiah, this is going to be true of Messiah. But it is Jesus looking back and finding significance in this Old Testament text that applies to today. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. it, it, it's, it's, it's going to be an important point because um, 
we say that the scriptures refer to Jesus. Okay, so does that mean that when we're reading the Psalms or reading Isaiah, really what these writers have in mind is something hundreds of years in the future? In other words, are they predictors of something that's in the future? Not necessarily. I mean, yes, they looked for a ruler uh, um, to sit on the throne of David, but there's actually not a lot not a lot. It's compared to everything else in the Old Testament, there's not a lot of prediction going on. But so what's happening then with Jesus and then with his followers is they are rereading the Old Testament to find, uh, to give significance to what they see happening in their day. He, here's, here's the way it works. Um, remember there are two things that followers of Jesus are very sure about one is the resurrection and the other is that the scriptures are true okay those two things you're very very sure about okay so you've seen Jesus die you've seen him raise from the dead so Jesus is vindicated. You say, yes, he's truly God's anointed person, God's anointed um, Messiah. How is it that we miss this? How is it that the scriptures, we, we never saw this in the scriptures? So that's the motivation then to go back and reread the scriptures uh, that you know are true. You say, oh, are there, like, like, reading the mystery novel a second time. Mm-hmm. Oh, there's a hint. There's, there's a hint. We never saw it the first time through. Um, but now we do. Uh, okay, I'll, I'll show you some more. Um, Luke 22. For I tell you, this scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was counted among the lawless, and indeed... What was written about me is being fulfilled. So the, the, the scripture is just that middle bit. He was counted among the lawless. It's from Isaiah 53, and this is why I showed you Isaiah 53 at the end of the Old Testament, or in the prophets bit of the Old Testament. Jesus is using Isaiah 53 to refer to himself. And there's some other things in Isaiah 53 that are going to be really important. What else we got? So, in light of Jesus' activity, rereading the scriptures, the gospel writers added many more references to the scriptures uh, to establish the proper context for understanding Jesus. So, uh, Jesus' followers take over. Oh, here's another Isaiah 53 one. Um, so, Matthew. So, so, this is Matthew saying, "The evening they brought many who were possessed with demons, and he cast out spirits with the word." And he healed all who were sick. This is to fulfill. This is to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our infirmities and bore our diseases. So now this text in Isaiah fifty-three, he says, "Oh, that applies to Jesus too." I I I, I find um, this seven hundred year old scripture uh, helps to. Um, helps me to understand what's going on in the life of Jesus. 
In addition to this, other writers in the New Testament continue to mine the Old Testament for ways of understanding Jesus and the Jesus movement. Here's one um, uh, on the day of Pentecost. So Peter stands up. God raised him up, having loosed the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he was at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad, my tongue rejoiced, moreover, my flesh will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with thy presence. So Peter is reading this psalm, and he's finding reference to Messiah. That's not to say that the psalm itself can't be understood within the context in which it was written. Right? But there's, it, it, it's like there's a, there's a deeper meaning or a, another meaning that, that, that helps to understand Jesus. Okay. What else have we got? Okay, so there's so so that rereading of the scriptures is something that's important uh, for what's going on in the Jesus movement, and we'll see uh, because it's it's a re a rereading, and uh, my my word is going to be a reframing of the Jewish tradition. So reframing the death of Jesus. This is going to be one of the most important things that followers of Jesus have to do. I was saying last time, the death of Jesus seems to most people to be obvious evidence of failure. The Messiah isn't to come and be defeated by the enemies. He's supposed to defeat the enemies. Um, and for anybody who's not a Jew, somebody who's hung on a cross, I mean, they're the lowest of the low. So it just seems ridiculous. Uh, so, what in the world can Christians do to tell the story? And you can see here, the, there may have been um, a temptation to say, well, let's forget about him dying. The point is that he's risen from the dead. But they don't do that. Mm -hmm. They don't do that. Um, let's, see, let's see what they do do. Uh, well, we talked about Jesus approaching his own death, didn't we? Mm -hmm. uh, so we don't need to repeat this, but Jesus anticipating his death John the Baptist had been killed, so it's not surprising that Jesus would anticipate his own death. Um, we talked about uh, him coming at the time of Passover. That's significant. Um, the parable of the vineyard where the, the master sends his son, he, he, he says that in the last week of his, of his life. The Last Supper, we have the saying, this is the blood of the new covenant. Uh, this cup is the blood of the new covenant in my blood. Um, so all ways in which Jesus is approaching his own death. 
Um, and yes, here's the, here's the uh, his saying right here at the Last Supper. He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to, to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, he took the cup after uh, supper, saying, This cup is poured out, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. I, you don't need to come. You can just come to church on Sunday, and you can get some of this stuff. Um, this is going back to... New Covenant was going back to Jeremiah, and in my blood, uh, blood of the covenant is going to go back to Exodus 24. I have the meal, and everybody gets sprinkled. Okay. Um, yes, oh, sorry. Here's the Jeremiah text. David coming, says the Lord, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. Fine. So, so, yeah, so some interesting things then about this text in Jeremiah. He's talking about a new covenant. Why, why a new covenant? Because the covenant they have has been broken. So we're looking for a new covenant. Da, 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 da. Uh, my covenant which they broke. I will put the law within them. So there's an internalization of law, of uh, uh, Torah. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will do it. And I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. So here are some of the themes that just get jumbled together, get, get packaged together. When you're talking about New Covenant, you're also talking about a writing of the law in, uh, on, on, on people's hearts, and you're talking about forgiveness of sins. Okay? Those things come together. The, oh, this is the Exodus text. Uh, we have that yet um, on Sunday. Go over that. Okay, so that was Jesus approaching his own death. Now let me see. So if Jesus' death was part of a plan, and it's not simply a tragedy, what significance do Jesus' followers see in that death? Okay, again. So resurrection, we are sure of resurrection. We are sure that Jesus is God's appointed Messiah. God allowed Jesus to die. That must not have been an accident. That's the reasoning. God allowed Jesus to die. That must not have been an accident. So what was the point of it? Okay. Well, the first thing that I'll say now, I, 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 I think the things that come here can go in different orders. Uh, but... I just put it in the order that makes sense to me. Uh, the first thing that we hear about is that Jesus' death is an expression of love. It's a demonstration, first of all, of Jesus' love. Uh, a number of texts uh, from Paul, first of all, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life I live in the flesh by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Or Ephesians 5.2, live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. 1 John 3.16, we know loved by this that he laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for one another. So there's the, the, the idea of 
Jesus' death being an expression of his love? How, how do we think of that? Um, his love is something that characterizes his life, and his death is um, uh, carries that through. He's not doing something different when he dies. It's uh, but it's also a demonstration of God's love. This is how the uh, New Testament writers are reflecting. Uh, John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Romans 5.8, but God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So God proves his love for us. 1 John 4.10, in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Okay, so we have a love of Jesus and uh, a love of God going on there. Um, does anybody want to ask anything at this point? Just that I really like John 3.16. It is always his book to me, even as a child. Yeah. yeah. It's one of the ones that pops in my head all the time. <laughs> all the time. <laughs> and I kind of like Amen. That. Amen to that, yeah. So... Uh, what is the logic of the argument? Uh, Jesus was God's Messiah. We believe this because of the kind of life Jesus led, and by the fact that he was raised from the dead. Right. So, thinking of ourselves as disciples of Jesus, we were going around with him. So we know he's, he, he's Messiah. We saw his ministry. We saw his ministry, and we've seen him raised from the dead. Yeah. Uh, sex. Uh, therefore, whatever happens to Jesus, including his death, must be part of God's plan. Yeah. It's not an accident. It's not a defeat. Okay. God intended this. We know from the scriptures that the work of the Messiah is about restoring the people of God and establishing the kingdom of God. Okay. Therefore, Jesus' death in addition to all that he did in his life, must have had something to do with that restoration. If, if Jesus' death is a demonstration of his own love, then presumably his death is also a demonstration of God's love as well. I think that's the logic that makes sense within the Jesus movement. Well, if you look at the Trinity, Jesus and God are one, so... Yeah, we're not there yet. We've, we've got several hundred years to go before we get to the Trinity. I mean, I don't mean to put it down, but um, we've really got very primitive ideas. It was just a discussion we had, at, you know, at, at something else other than that. Like, if, if God and Jesus are one, then... Is God really crucifying himself? Yeah, no, no, good question. Um, and I think what I'm doing here in trying to progress historically, how, how, how the, the logic would have gone, how the thinking would have gone, should help us to understand how they came up with the idea of Trinity. Okay. 
Um, is, that, is everybody okay that it's the love of God that is the prime motivator then in the and love sometimes hurts, doesn't it? Yeah. When you discipline a kid, can I turn off? Can I turn off? Oh, uh, try it. It's it's really painful. It's pretty bright for you. Yeah, I forgot. Oh, I sunglasses. Yeah. Last time it was really dark. Let's let's yeah. just see if it's. Oh. Is that okay? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. <laughs> I have <laughs> Some of you uh, may have noticed I didn't say that the motivation for Jesus dying was to satisfy God's anger. Which is the church has sort of lived into that, even if they've never said. So there are some things that I don't say <laughs> that, that are significant. <laughs> I, um, and I'm not saying that uh, the anger of God or the wrath of God isn't something that needs to be considered. Uh, it, it's, it is a biblical theme. But there's not much in the New Testament to say that's what's going on with Jesus' death. He was fulfilling a prophecy of God's love to give the people yeah. hope and salvation. So the primary motivation going on here is that it's an expression of love. Yeah. Sorry, where, where, like, this is a new concept to me that it was an expression of good anger. Yeah. No, the idea is 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 that um, in bearing sins, uh, Jesus absorbed God's anger from against everybody. Be grateful that you <laughs> But it, it gets really mixed up. It gets really mixed up if it's, is, is it the love of God or is it the anger of God that's doing this? You see, it, it, it doesn't... Anyway, I want to focus on the, on the love of God here. Okay, so uh, does Jesus' death then have a purpose? Okay, so it's an expression of Jesus' love and it's an expression of the love of God. Does it have a purpose? Um, there's a couple of things we can say about uh, death in the Jewish tradition having a purpose. Uh, the first one is, in the Jewish tradition, there was the idea of death being redemptive. And we saw this, we didn't see it, but <laughs> if you read the, book of, the books of Maccabees, it, it, it uh, comes out. Uh, there's a story within the book, book of Mac, Maccabees where seven brothers are, are, are being killed one after the other because they won't eat pork. And it, it essentially gives them an opportunity, each one, to express prayer. And one of them expresses, um, yes, uh, I have it here. I, like my brothers, give up body and life for the laws of our fathers, appealing to God to show mercy soon to our nation and to bring an end uh, to bring to an end the wrath of the Almighty which has justly fallen on the whole nation. So the idea is that with his death maybe there will be a change to the nation. I'm just saying there's, there, there is within the Jewish tradition before the time of Jesus the idea of um, a redemptive death, a death that can bring about uh, a positive change. 
method. Yep, death of the oh, that's what I just read. Um, uh, where specifically the New Testament reflects this kind of thinking is connecting Jesus with the servant figure in Second Isaiah. So that's that uh, part from Isaiah, the latter chapters. Um, that we did at the end of, of the uh, the prophet sec uh, section. We've already seen some um, references to Isaiah 53, and here we have it again. He was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that was that made us whole. By his bruises we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned. Uh, we have all turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So now if this text becomes used to understand what's going on with Jesus in his death, this becomes quite helpful. It becomes quite helpful to understand what's going on. That um, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all, um, he was wounded for our transgressions. So in some ways, this now becomes a death for us. Right. Isaiah 53. Okay, so that's that. And so now what do we have in Paul? The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Um, First Thessalonians, God has not destined us uh, for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we wake or sleep, we might live in Him, live with Him. I think that's on your test. Oh, is it? Wow. <laughs> Just taking a clue, guys. <laughs> okay. Uh, so Jesus' death being for us. God sent his son to accomplish something by his death. When the time had fully come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the, the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Uh, this was evidence of God's love for his people. Okay, we've seen this. Already, uh, Romans 5, God shows his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, so can we a bit, be a bit more specific then about the significance of Jesus' death? How did Jesus' death work, particularly with reference to the story of Israel? Yeah. Let's see if we can follow it through. God made a good creation. Humans started to mess things up. As part of his commitment to restore creation, God called Abraham and promised to make a nation out of him and to bless the entire world through him. God created a nation by means of liberating Abraham's descendants out of slavery in Egypt. God made a covenant with Israel that involved his commitment to them and their obligations to him, namely the law. Um, if, if Israel kept the covenant, they would be blessed. If they broke the covenant, they would be cursed, with the ultimate curse being exile. Right. 
But even in exile, there was the hope of restoration if there was repentance. The prophets spoke about this hope, returned from Babylon in connection with God establishing a new covenant with Israel and forgiving Israel's sins. Went back to Jeremiah again. Okay? And this cursing bit, that was the end of Deuteronomy, you remember. Mm-hmm. You, you, you obey, you will be blessed. You disobey, you will be cursed. You keep disobeying, and you're going to exile. God considers Jesus' death as the establishment of his new covenant. Here we are. So that's bringing it around then. That, 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 that's finishing the, 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 the arc, if you like. How the New Testament then connects with this story is that God considers Jesus' death as the establishment of that new covenant. So what's going to happen with in there? There's, there's going to be the, the, the writing of law on the hearts. Okay, that's going to refer to the role of the Holy Spirit. And what, what else happens? Forgiveness of sins. Okay, that, that was the package that Jeremiah talked about. Yeah. Okay, so here we have uh, the, the Galatians text. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. You all got that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, I can see the words, but I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what in the world is he talking about? Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. It comes from a text also from Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 21, that simply says anybody who's hung on a tree, uh, the corpse is not supposed to remain all night uh, because you should bury him the same day. For anyone hung on a tree is under God's curse. So here's the kind of, it, it, may be, it may not seem watertight to you and me, but it is how rabbinic argument worked. Um, you could, for example, take two texts from Scripture that have a word in common between them and through reflection come up with a, a new concept. So that's what's going on here, is that uh, redeemed us from the curse of the law, that's Deuteronomy 28-29, that's redeemed us from exile, if you like, Uh, by becoming a curse for us. How did Christ become a curse for us? Well, he hung on a tree, according to Deuteronomy 21, that says he's under God's curse. So bringing those two ideas together, you see how Jesus in his death bears the curse. Okay. Okay. What I, what I was wondering is the first thing that actually came first to my head was Judas. Because he comes. Aha. Yeah, different story. But yeah, that, but, but that yeah. kind of reminded me of that. But under rabbinic law, rabbinic thinking, she could have tied those two together. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Tried, so just the way you said you took one word. Yeah, yeah. Two, yeah. Two, two, so two, that, he was the first person I was thinking of. I wasn't uh-huh. thinking of Christ. Because yeah. even though he's, he's on a 
a cross, I, I was thinking literally as a tree. So, tree. so clearly there needs to be more to it than just the two things. Yeah. Exactly. There, are, there, exactly. there is more than simply Jesus who was hung on a tree. Uh, and there, Paul's not making the point that every Jew who was crucified <laughs> is bearing the fruit. But he's saying this is the way to think about Jesus' death, because he's bearing that, that curse. Now, here I'm going to say something that I'm probably in the minority among commentators, but it's what makes sense to me. I don't think Christ redeemed me from the curse of the law. Who's under the curse of the law? Anyone in exile away from God. <laughs> no, not quite. Huh. Who's, who's in exile? The Israelites. The Israelites. Well, I'm just talking about today, present day. Yeah, but I'm talking about here. Oh, sorry. So Who's Paul referring to? Um, redeemed us. Yeah. So here's how I'm going to read this. Redeemed us is redeeming Israel from the curse of the law. That is bringing an end to exile by becoming a curse for, uh, for us. In order that what? In order that when we die, we will go to heaven. No. In order that in Christ the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. That they should be the light to the nations. So what's the logic going on? The logic is, once you fix Israel, then the Gentiles can come in. Now they're fighting about right now. You see? <laughs> so say that again. <laughs> this part, that commentary again. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Yeah. This is uh, Christ dealing with what was wrong in Israel. Israel. Uh, it's, it's, it's a bit like Israel has become focused on Messiah. And Messiah, by dying, bears that curse. The curse that was on Israel in the exile was still a thing. So by fixing that, then Israel is fixed, and then the blessing of Abraham might go to the Gentiles. What was supposed to happen at the beginning in, in the, uh, the, that was talked about in Genesis 12, we finally get fixed right um, in the New Testament, uh, so that uh, blessing really can come. So... Your mention about what's happening today is this blessing going to the nations. I mean, it's pretty complicated, but I think we get mixed up when we talk about present-day Israel. It's just like I was looking something up when I was in. Micah? Yeah, where's that one? For justice and mercy? Yeah, Micah. Yeah, and then I kind of, you know, you, you read above and around and all that. And I thought, oh, am I reading the newspaper or what? <laughs> okay, so, yeah, Neil. I have a quick question. You said that the curse is referring to the exile. Yeah. What, what is it, but the curse of the law? Yeah. What, what law? 
Torah. Deuteronomy. Yeah. So it's it's the it's the Torah in Deuteronomy twenty eight twenty nine uh, said okay if if you obey these laws, you will be blessed. If you disobey, you, the, these are the curses that will come upon you. If you can continue to disobey, uh, you will go into exile. So that, I take it, is the curse of the law. It's the, it's the curse that the law gives for disobedience. Okay. So right. it's also reinforcing the idea that there's going to be now a whole new set of law, or a new law to follow after... Yeah, we'll get to that. Okay. Yeah, because that's part of the rethinking that that's uh, going to have to go on. Okay. Yeah. Okay. What else have we got? Uh, new covenant. So we've mentioned new covenant, restored relationship between God and His people. Uh, Jesus mentioned this in at the Last Supper. Um, right, Paul says it as well, uh, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, and it goes back to Jeremiah 31. Uh, uh, defeat of the enemy, so Jesus' death is a defeat of, en of the enemy. Uh, at the end of Romans chapter 8, uh, he says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, rulers, Things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. One of the things that the, that the Jesus movement does is to reconceptualize the enemy. So in, in the Jewish tradition, the, the enemy is Rome at the, at, at the time. Um, we, we, we come... Christians come with a broader, uh, a somewhat spiritualized understanding of the enemy. Um, it's not simply a political power. There are unseen powers at work that, um, again, Jesus' death brings victory over. So Paul is just trying to recite Know, a litany of anything that could be in creation that could oppose us. Uh, and he's saying, we are more than conquerors. So, Jesus' death is a victory over the enemy. Uh, Jesus' death is, uh, provides justification. So, another language, uh, uh, another terminology, you're justified by the death of Jesus this is law court imagery. Um, those who share in the... And justification works in two ways. So, uh, sorry, first of all, justify. So the person, if, if you are on trial, you're being accused of something, and you are justified, you are acquitted. Right? So it's, it's language from a trial context. Now, in the New Testament, justification with regard to the death of Jesus it specifically refers to two things. One is that those who share the faith of the Messiah are declared to be included in Abraham's family. 
So that's how you get into Abraham's family, is by uh, faith in Christ. Uh, that's being justified. But then part two is, and that's the right family to be in. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, so the people who have faith in the Messiah, or faith of the Messiah, are in the right. And it, it, that is, they're in the right by the exercise of faith. And by being in Abraham's family, they are indeed in the right. That's the right family to be in. So that's what it means to be justified. I don't think I ever understood justification that way before. Okay. What else have we got? Oh. We foreseen that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are men of faith are blessed with Abraham who had faith. Okay, so there we go. This is what justification is. So, in a way, it's saying right there that the gospel is, In you shall all people shall be blessed. Yeah. That is the gospel. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Uh, sacrifice bringing forgiveness. Another way of thinking about the death of Jesus. Um, this is a big uh, emphasis in the book of Hebrews. Uh, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, then to wait until his enemies should be made a stool for his feet. For by a single sacrifice he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after these days, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and write it on their minds. Then he, then he adds, I will remember their sins and their misdeeds no more. Of course, referring back to Jeremiah. Uh, but here, the writer of Hebrews is uh, reflecting on the Old Testament practice of uh, offering sacrifice for sins, and it would bring forgiveness and th th this is the acme of that. Um, that. Christ offers himself as a sacrifice for sins. That's, that's how to understand um, the death of Jesus. Okay. Smoking signs, come on. The no smoking signs on the plane. <laughs> <laughs> <That's right. laughs> Inauguration of the new creation. Okay, we. Oh, inauguration of the new creation. We haven't talked about this very much. Uh, if anyone is in Christ, there's a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. So there's another way of thinking about what Jesus' death has uh, brought about is new creation. Is that everything? Okay, so there's. So there we have um, all different ways of talking about the significance of Jesus' death. It's like, it's like a Passover, liberation, bearing the curse of exile, uh, establishing new covenant, defeating the enemy, 
providing justification, sacrifice, bringing forgiveness, and inaugurating a new creation. So it's, it's, it's a bit more like a flower with a lot of petals around it um, the, the, to think of the multidimensional aspect of what's going on here. <coughs> Any questions? Most of this, I think, is um, metaphor. Like that all those? Yeah. I mean, here's, here's the question that people often have. How does the cross actually work? Like, like, like what actually is going on behind the scenes? Uh, you've read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? You have to read that. So the question is, um, Aslan is killed on the stone table, right? But what the witch doesn't realize is that there's a deeper magic under the stone table that when this happens... Um, Everything's going to be turned around. Um, so the question is, okay, what's the deeper magic at work within Jesus' death that brings about um, all these things? And what's interesting is the New Testament doesn't address that very much. It talks about the, Jesus' death is like a liberation. It's uh, bearing the curse. It's the start of a new covenant, defeat of the enemy, etc. But it doesn't actually do the um, reveal. Yeah, how is it that the death of the Son of God brings this about? Which has been the theological reflection for 2,000 years. Theologians have been asking precisely that question. Uh, how does this work? That's beyond our course. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's the next one. Right that one down there. Yeah. What other topics would you like to say? I've already done possible stuff. This is how the New Testament but 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 you can see what I what I said towards the beginning <laughs> is that talking about the death of Jesus was going to be really important for the Jesus movement. How do you if if you want to put it this way, how do you give it positive spin? How do you say, no, it wasn't a sign of failure? And so you develop language around these uh, seven, seven things here um, to talk about how uh, Jesus' death brought about new life, victory, uh, forgiveness, um, and you can see how some of them are bundled together, right? Like, like New Covenant, uh, forgiveness of sins. We saw that in Jeremiah. You expect, if this is New Covenant, there's also forgiveness of sins, so one leads you to the other. Okay. But I like the, I like the image of the flower. 
Um, there's various ways of entering into talking about the death of Jesus. The flower to me represents new life. So. Yeah, very good. Okay, we're doing well. So reframing the death of Jesus. Um, yeah, so this is interesting now. That's not all that the New Testament has to say about the death of Jesus. So what we've been talking about so far is um, the death of Jesus for us. But there's a fair bit of language in the New Testament that talks about the death of Jesus as something we participate in. So we, we saw the text from Galatians 2 a little earlier. I have been crucified with Christ. That's not Jesus dying for me. That's somehow I'm involved in that uh, as well. So this is another dimension uh, to the whole uh, death of Jesus uh, thinking. Uh, here's from Philippians chapter 2. Do nothing from selfish selfishness or conceit, but in humility count others better than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God to, as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to, unto death, even death on a cross. So here the death of Jesus is not something that does something for us. It's a pattern to follow. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. Which reminds me of the certain songs in Isaiah. Uh-huh. What else do we have here? Okay, the, the, yeah, there's a lot more about this. We, we could say... Um, do you remember the language in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 where Paul is talking about <coughs> the Lord's Supper, the cup of blessing that we bless? Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? So, um, it's an interesting thing when you're, when you're um, uh, coming to church for uh, Holy Communion. You're uh, celebrating what God through Christ has done for us, yes. But we're also uh, participating in. We're also... Um, Standing in solidarity with, that might be a way of, uh, of uh, putting it, standing in solidarity with Jesus. Is that a good way of putting it, right? Yeah. So, so those, those two ways, those thinking of what Christ has done for us, but also of what happens to us um, as we 
share in uh, the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. Every time I have communion, yeah. I think of my mom. Because she said to me, not long before she passed, when she would go to communion, she says, like, I, I just, I'm so excited. She's like, I feel, I feel fresh, renewed. Uh-huh. Oh, for her, that was just yeah. the one thing that she just did not ever find. Because of how it made her feel. Yeah. And every time I go to communion, I think of how much joy my mother Okay, we're going to move on from the death of Jesus to God. We're going to cover God in yes. my friends. <laughs> uh, reframing God. Oh my goodness. What a title. But this is that, what I said is the early followers of Jesus did not change their God. Okay? But what did they do? Uh, what led to a rethinking of God was Jesus. Not because of what Jesus claimed about himself, but because his followers gained a new understanding of God through Jesus. In order to talk about God, they found that they had to talk about Jesus. Jesus represented the presence of God to his followers. Okay, so this is before we get into any ideas of Trinity. Jesus is playing a role much more than you could say of any prophet. He's bringing a revelation of God that is new and fresh and so forth. Um, and in order to talk about that, followers of Jesus found they had to talk about Jesus. And what is it that Jesus does? Jesus, it turns out, does things that we know God does. So Jesus forgives sins. Um, we find various places in the Gospels where Jesus forgives sins. Uh, Jesus calms the sea. I think the point of that story where uh, he rebukes he the wind. Um, they, uh, the uh, disciples in the boat say, who is this then that even the wind and the sea obey him? That's the point. Who is this? What's going on? Be because up until now, we thought it was only God who could do that. Mm -hmm. okay. <clears throat> and then you get Paul doing... Uh, doing this that we mentioned a few weeks ago. Uh, so just to warn you that it was coming. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this language of every knee bowing 
uh, every tongue confessing comes from Isaiah 45, where God says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, there is no other. By myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone forth in righteousness a word that shall not return to me every knee shall bow and every tongue uh, shall swear. Could that be a reason why we but we uh, well cat what called Catholic why we kind of genuflected, you know? Oh, is it behind genuflection? Um hmm. Oh, maybe. I don't know. I think I heard that once in an Anglican. Did you? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Um, but I, I, again, you can see that, uh, the um, radical thing that's going on here that you've got a text in Isaiah that is very much embedded in a, a monotheistic message. Uh, I am God and there is no other. And so, how is it that then Paul can take language from there and apply it to Jesus? That's the radical thing that's going on here. Um, so somehow Jesus is becoming wrapped up in how we understand God. So that's the why, is why I call it reframing God. The reframing of how we understand God. Okay, what else have we got? Yeah. Um... In 1 Corinthians, for although there be, uh, there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, and indeed there, there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one Lord, uh, one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Um, and we might reflect on the Language from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. That is, is, is one Lord. Uh, this, is the, this is probably the first text you learn as a, as a Jewish uh, young man. Uh, the Shema is called. Sh uh, Shema means hear. Hear, O Israel. So the one thing that you don't say at the end of this the Lord our God is one Lord. The one thing you do not say is, and. It's <laughs> got a full stop. <laughs> That's what Paul does. And one Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus for Paul has been wrapped up into the Shema. Mm -hmm. What was Shema again? Shema is this text. Shema is the Hebrew word that means Lord. hear. Oh, hear. Okay. <laughs> Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. And they say it every day. Yeah. It's what you go to battle for. Mm. It's, 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 it's not just your uh, school lesson, it's why you go to battle. Because there's one God. So this is, again, it's, it's part of reframing how, how we understand God. Uh, so if Jesus represented the presence of God to his followers, the ongoing experience of that presence 
after Jesus was gone was attributed to the work of God's Spirit. Okay, so Jesus is gone, but we continue to experience something of the presence of God that we experienced when Jesus was here. What is that? And Christians spoke of that as God's Spirit. Okay? So now the Spirit gets wrapped up in, in, into this. Because you are children, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. Uh, if the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through his Spirit that dwells in you. So now, uh, so, so just as um, it, Jesus is brought into the conception of God, so the Holy Spirit will be brought into the conception of God. So this is this is the the um, precursor of how we get to Trinity eventually. Okay. Writers of the New New Testament were not in the first place trying to answer the question: Is Jesus God? They were primarily wanting to talk about God. But the best way they could do that was to talk about Jesus. Okay? Any, any questions on that? So, when we pray, our Father. Can we also pray our Jesus? Or is it always that we should pray Creator God, our Father? Hmm. I don't know that there are strict rules. Um... Following the example of Jesus, we pray to the Father. Um, so that would be following the example of Jesus. But why would it be wrong to, to speak directly to Jesus? Especially if you feel like you have a relationship with Yeah, yeah. I view God and Lord as separate uh, in a sense that Lord is, you know, like you say, like a king on earth, you know, like who, who, that's who you follow in your earthly life. Yeah. But God is still above that representation in the word Lord. That's so, sort of how I have them distinct. So in your Old Testament, you'll find, even in your English uh uh, Bibles, you'll find two spellings of Lord. You'll find all capitals, mm -hmm. and you'll find capital L-O-R-D. Okay. The all capitals is Yahweh. That, that's what the Hebrew word behind that is. Okay. And the capital L 
small case ORD is the word, it's Adonai, um, and it, it's, I suppose, similar to Sir. Um, you you uh, address somebody with respect at, at Adonai. But of course, that word is used for God as well. And to, to uh, deepen the plot, um, Jews understood that a way to keep the second commandment, you should not misuse the name of the Lord your God, is not to pronounce the name Yahweh. And so when they came to that in the text, when they're reading scripture, instead of pronouncing Yahweh, they pronounced it Adonai. Oh, oh gosh. Hmm. Yeah, that's because they weren't allowed to say Yahweh. Yeah, and, and, and they had indicators within the text to say uh, that, that would indicate to the reader, you pronounce Adonai at this point. Is your reason now, clear as mud? Oh, it's going to get clearer. <laughs> okay. Now, translate that into Greek. All of that, whether it's capital L-O-R-D or lowercase, is going to get translated with the Greek word kurios. K-U-R-I-O-S. Okay? They all get curious. Yeah, so, so there isn't a distinction anymore. So what happens in the New Testament when you speak of the Lord Jesus Christ? So you've got a term that Jews refer, used to refer to God, now being used to refer to Jesus. So there's a, there's a, uh, what shall we say, a subtle um, way in which, again, Jesus is being brought into uh, the Godhead um, wouldn't be inappropriate to speak uh, to to speak to somebody as curious simply as sir. That wouldn't be inappropriate. But with all of that curios reflecting God in the Old Testament, uh, there is something strongly suggestive when it comes to the New Testament that Jesus is called curios. Right. Yeah. Is there a reason why they don't always spell Yahweh with a with a A? Yahweh with a without the A. Like Y A W Y A. Some of them are just Y and they leave out the A. Oh, sometimes they just do the consonants. Yeah. Is there a reason? Why yeah. They do that? yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, in, there is. In in Hebrew. <laughs> Um, they skip all the vowels. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I vowels are secondary in the in the Hebrew language. Yeah, I don't. I wonder if there was something significant it, outside of that. It, uh, yeah. Um, An in, interesting thing is is um, the way is it, so vowels are little markers that you put around below or above uh, the Hebrew letters. Okay, so uh, the Hebrew letters themselves are these big characters, and if you're Jewish and you grew up, you don't need the vowel system. You, you just, you know it. You buy a, 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 a newspaper in Jerusalem today, you'll just have a, have the uh, consonants. Oh, okay. You don't, yeah, for you. Fill in the blanks. 
Yeah, the vowels are for children. <laughs> uh, okay, so what, what they did, I don't think I t told you this in uh, part one of this course, what they did was then when you came to the, the word Yahweh in the Old Testament, mm -hmm. is that you put around it the vowels that were appropriate for Adonai. That was your indicator that you were supposed to pronounce Adonai at that point. Now, if you read it literally, however, with those vowel pointings around the letters for Yahweh, what you come up with is Yehovah. That's where the name Jehovah comes from. So it's actually a misreading of what's going on in the, in the Old Testament with uh, marking the divine name. Yeah. Hey. That was just for free. Uh, Jesus represented a new revelation. We've had that. Okay, so that's reframing God. Reframing Torah is something we could talk about. Uh, I think I'll just mention a few things, but you can imagine... Um, there needs to be some reflection on Torah and when you're reading uh, the Apostle Paul he, he's, he has an interesting um, has an interesting dichotomy within Paul in places he speaks critically of the law and in other places he speaks in support of the law. And indeed, this is a major issue within New Testament <laughs> scholarship. How do, you, how do you sort out what Paul is doing here? Uh, so for example, we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus. Uh, the promise to Abraham and his descendants that they should inherit the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Romans 6, you're not under law, but under grace. Whereas other comments, he's supportive. Um, he doesn't use the word law in 1 Thessalonians 1.9. You turn from idols to serve the living and true God. But, isn't that the first commandment? <laughs> you shall have no other gods, or you shall not make a graven image. Second commandment. Um... Do we overthrow the law by the faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Um, Romans 13, Oh, no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not kill, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. Any other commandment are summed up in this sentence, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, there is a positive reflection on Torah. Right? So it's the, it, it's, the, it's the same writer. So what is he actually... Um, how, how do we make sense then of what Paul is doing here? And I think it's going to be something like this. Uh, parts of the Torah that were rethought by the Jesus movement, the role of the sacrificial system. So it seems that with Jesus... Um, you don't need the sin sacrifice anymore. 
So if that's the case, then with the fall of the temple, it's not a crushing defeat. Yeah, right. Right? That, that sacrifices themselves are done away with with the fall of the temple. Um, uh, the Jesus movement can handle that because we've had the sacrifice that, if, if you like, ends all sacrifices. Jesus representing the temple, you know, therefore... That's right, too. That's right, too. Um, purity regulations, so ways in which you needed to be pu pure, primarily, to go into the temple. Uh, when you don't have the temple, then you don't <laughs> need that. Uh, so these are ways in which it, it, it seems like this Torah instruction is no longer um, pertinent. Uh, practices that were considered Jewish cultural distinctives, so particularly uh, circumcision, food laws, and Sabbath-keeping. Interesting that Sabbath-keeping is in there, too. Sabbath-keeping becomes an issue. I mean, one of the Ten Commandments. Uh, but it seems that there's some room for discussion around that. Uh, we're, yes, we're meeting to celebrate uh, on Resurrection Day. Does that mean we're not supposed to work with the day before as Christians? That would be something that they'll have to work out. If the, the, keeping the Sabbath, just personally, I try to not do some of the things they say. Do you keep the Sabbath or do you keep the Lord's Day? Oh, I guess it's the Lord's Day I'm mm -hmm. thinking about because I do yeah. shop on the Sabbath. I uh -huh. <laughs> right. So that I can be free on Sunday. Isn't that, yeah. it's a, it's a, even that, though, is a profound change yeah. Um, yeah. The, to the, uh, the commandment that we have changed the day of the week. Oh. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But as long as we have God is our focus in everyday life, and we're honoring him all the time. If we run out of something, we have to go to the store. It's not. It's not. Parts of the uh, Torah that were maintained then by the Jewish uh, movement, uh, the revelation of God, so remember, it's not, the Torah is not all law, it's also narrative, uh, the promise to Abraham, of course, that's part of Torah, his commitment to restore creation. Uh, the way Torah regulated relationships, I, I think most of the morality of the Old Testament probably stays put. I can probably be challenged on some points there. Um, but the way in which we relate to each other, so... Stealing is still wrong. Adultery is still wrong, etc. It's interesting on stealing. One of the gals at Gary's works said she's never stole anything. And I remember a, a message one Sunday where some people have said they've never stole anything. They've never robbed their bank. They've never snuck something out of the store. But when you're at work on your work time and you make a personal phone call, if you take the pen home with you or the paper clips, I mean, if, if you get yeah. your set, you can just go. Everybody has stolen. The fact is, whether we do it intentionally or, or otherwise. I think ways in which the uh, Torah speaks of concern for people in general, 
concern for the poor, for example, is still going to be um, relevant within the Jesus movement. Okay? I'm going to say, we just got a, a few minutes left. Reframing the people of God, this is going to be significant. Who now are the people of God? The Jesus movement and the people of God. So Jesus used language to suggest that national Israel and the people of God were not identical. So many will come from the east and the west and will take up places, places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So in other words, Israel and the kingdom are not identical. In the New Testament, writers used language that originally referred to Israel in order to speak of Christians. Right. Where did we get that? Oh, oh yeah, this is I think, I think we've had this one not too long ago. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people. <laughs> it's on your test, uh, and of course, drawing from Exodus 19, using language that pertains to Israel and now is drawn and applied to uh, Christian congregations. Paul defines followers of Jesus by using language that referred to Israel. Um, for he is not a real Jew who is one outwardly, nor is true circumcision something external and physical. He is a Jew who is one inwardly. And real circumcision is a matter of the heart, spiritual and not literal. So it's internal things, not external things uh, that make one a Jew. Paul draws a distinction between national Israel and spiritual Israel. So uh, Romans 9, For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. Getting that? That must be kind of harsh on those of... Yeah. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. So who are the who who, who are who is the great nation that, that stems from Abraham? He's arguing that it's not identical with uh, uh, national Israel. Uh, the defining mark for the people of God is faith in Jesus rather than Torah. So that's going to be significant. If you are a Jew, what, if, what are the defining marks uh, that um, identify you as being a Jew? Circumcision. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm under Torah, yes. Circumcision would, would be one thing, what I eat. <laughs> Um, whereas the defining mark of the people of God for Jews and Gentiles is now faith in Jesus. So, so this becomes the DNA. Okay. Now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all who believe. There's no distinction between Jews and Gentiles since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified as a gift 
by his grace as a gift through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as an atoning sacrifice by his blood through faith slash faithfulness. There's a whole discussion around that, which unfortunately I don't have time to go into, but it's fascinating. But anyways, you see how faith becomes those who believe um, who are included in. The people of God are no longer defined by food. Fair enough. I, I know and I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. The kingdom of God is not food and drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Fair enough. The people of God are no longer defined by circumcision. And Paul will say that many times. Um, right. So that's the defining marker for the people of God being faith. So the Jesus movement, so defined, is properly understood as the true descendants in the story of Abraham. Uh, Romans 4, the promise that he would inherit the world did not come to Abraham or to his descendants through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For this reason, it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his descendants, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to those who share the faith of Abraham. For he is the father of all of us, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. Okay, so that's... Uh, just some, so just something on rethinking who the, who the people of God are. Uh, followers of Jesus are still using the language uh, from the Old Testament, but seeing it now apply not in nationalistic terms, but in terms of a community that is expressive of faith and faith in Messiah. So M M Messiah becomes the, the focal point the identity point, not Torah. Torah is not thrown out, but it's not it, it's not the defining point of the new movement. Okay. And then uh, the the last thing I wanted to say is uh, the way in which the Jesus movement reframed Jewish hope. Jesus' resurrection is a foretaste of the more general resurrection. I mentioned that earlier today. Uh, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, and by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. As in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in its own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. So that's what I was saying before. So, so Christ is the first fruits. It's, you're, it's, he's, he's the first one that grows up. Uh, but it's, it's not the harvest yet. And there's the image then. So this is, this is typical um, Jewish understanding of how history is going. We li we, we, we we live in this age, we look forward to the age to come when God will establish his kingdom, will right all wrongs and so forth. And what marks the, 
uh, transition between the two will be a general resurrection. Okay. What does uh, the Jesus movement do? It says there was a resurrection already, and we're now in between that time. We live in an in-between time. So we're, we have a foretaste of the age to come because of the Holy Spirit. Uh, that, that, that's what Jesus' resurrection is. It is new life now, but we haven't come to the general resurrection. We're all going to die. Um, so we live in this kind of in-between time. That's, that, that's where our struggle is. So during this in-between time, followers of Jesus experience the presence of God in the form of God's Spirit, but they await the full restoration of themselves and of creation. Have I got Romans? Yeah. We know that the whole creation has been growing in travail together until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, Grown inwardly as we await for adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies. So there we are. Um, the whole creation is being redeemed. We ourselves, we have the first fruits of the Spirit. So we don't have everything yet, but by Jesus' resurrection, something has happened. Uh, but we still groan inwardly as we wait for the adoption, our, our full adoption if you like, <coughs> the redemption of our bodies. And there we, we come back to re re resurrection again. Uh, this, this just didn't make sense in a Greco-Roman world. Why would you want your bodies back? And Jesus' followers hope for the appearing, for the coming of Jesus. So may the God of peace himself sanctify you wholly, May your spirit and soul and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And that might be a good note to end on. Amen. Thank you very much, everyone. There we are. <laughs> I've enjoyed this very much. Oh, we have Jerry for lots of fun. Thank you, Jerry. Thank you very much. You're most welcome. Don't start again, you're one, Ellie.